Hi, this is Gloria Kim, Global Head of Index Research and Co-Head of Global ESG Research at JPMorgan Chase. And you're listening to All Into Account, our global cross-asset strategy podcast, where we take a look at the key trends impacting financial markets. In this episode, we'll discuss the key themes emerging in the social and governance pillars for ESG as well as J.P. Morgan's proprietary social and governance screens that's been developed by our quant research team. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by my colleagues to discuss these themes. So first, we have Jean-Javier Hector, head of EMEA ESG Equity Research, Hannah Lee, head of Asia ESG Equity Research, and Kerm Chaudhry, head of European Quantitative Strategy. JX, let's start with you and Europe. What are the key social and governance themes that are emerging for this region? Thank you very much for the question. Well, in Europe, 2022 has been the year where I would say we've seen policymakers focusing on delivering their long-term sustainability goals while addressing the concerns of a social, political, and geopolitical landscape which is affected by the Russia's war on Ukraine. I see this as a continuation of something which had started differently with the COVID pandemic but pretty much a more holistic assessment of sustainability where the S and the G pillars are being considered in relation to the environmental one. Governance is becoming a tool for the strategic management of environmental and social issues within corporates. It is hard to name a long-term challenge which has not both environmental and social implications. If you think about climate change, energy security, supply chain sustainability, as well as social inequalities, They are multifaceted and interlinked challenges which Europe and the European business community must tackle. So to this extent, as governance remains the foundation on which both financial and extra-financial strategies are built and executed, it has been put under a renewed focus. In short, the scope of governance has been expanded from increasing shareholder value to include the consideration of E and S performance and to ensure the long-term value creation. To name a few of the E, S, and G themes, or more particularly the S and G themes, which I see gaining traction, I think the cost of living crisis has highlighted a sometimes conflicting objective between the three pillars, and it revived the debate around what a just transition means in practice. This represents an emerging theme for Europe. Similarly, current geopolitical considerations are incentivizing Europe to think about security, This includes energy security, security of supply for key raw materials, and in particular, raw materials for the energy transition, as well as global security, including a renewed approach to defense. Over the long term, the concept of friendshoring, which favors trusted countries that share a set of norms and values on how to operate on the global economy, is also redefining the due diligence obligation that global corporates have on their supply chains. This includes enhanced control for human rights and labor rights violation. Last, the current focus on securing resilient supply chains has spurred deeper evaluation of the social pillar, and it has led to human capital management gaining prominence. Within human capital management, issues relating to not just human rights or labor rights, but also diversity, equity, and inclusions have emerged. Thanks for that. Can you also share the key regulatory developments that relate to the S&G pillars for Europe? 
Well, the European Union continues to lead in the breadth and depth of ESG regulatory and reporting requirements. Regulatory developments out of Europe have been centered around the finalization of the various components of its sustainable finance agenda, which is unprecedented in terms of scope and complexity and affects both non-financials and financial undertakings. It is important to note that this goes well beyond disclosure. This agenda has a transformative approach embedded into it. Its requirement to improve the disclosure of E, S, and G related data is a means to raise the standards of operation for European companies and sometimes foreign companies operating in Europe. So starting first with disclosure, investors should have in mind that with the recently agreed upon corporate sustainability reporting directive, the EU will require detailed sustainability disclosure on ESNG from 50,000 entities. This is five times more than before. Moreover, it will focus on increasing data quality as these data will need to receive at least limited assurance. Second, the EU is working on an expansion of its taxonomy of sustainable activities and the social and governance components are not forgotten. The most well-known is the taxonomy of environmentally sustainable activities. However, it is sometimes overlooked that for companies to claim alignment with it, they also have to comply with minimum social safeguards, which has put under a renewed focus the UN Global Compact and the compliance with the OECD guidelines for multinational corporations. Moreover, the EU has also been thinking about a social taxonomy which, while mirroring the environmental taxonomy, would substitute the science-based approach of the environmental taxonomy by the use of international standards and norms to define what is socially acceptable. The social taxonomy would complement existing EU regulation and foster and structure the rise of a social investing market. While the timeline for the development and adoption remains very uncertain, the EU social taxonomy would have wide implications for all three pillars of ESG. In addition to that, the definition of sustainable investments under SFDR, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, integrates the social components as whether a substantial contribution or a do no significant harm test. Moreover, social and governance KPIs are part of the PAI, Principal Adverse Impact Disclosures, which Article 8 and 9 funds have to disclose. Third, the EU has moved towards enhancing due diligence requirements regarding supply chain management with the upcoming European-wide Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive and a proposed EU ban on goods containing forced labor. This is moving human rights due diligence away from the realm of corporate social responsibility into the sphere of regulatory compliance. So overall, and to conclude, I would say that the EU across various regulations is approaching sustainability in a holistic manner, i.e. considering ES and G together. More interestingly, governance is being enlarged and as just mentioned, ESG reporting and ESG practices are in now increasingly part of a compliance exercise. Thanks, JX. Now let's turn to the Asia region. Hannah, can you talk about the key social and governance themes that you see for Asia? Focusing first on the S-pillar and in particular the increased importance being placed on human capital and supply chains, we see both risk and opportunity here for investors. 
risk because Asian companies play a key role in global supply chains, but countries often have different legal and human rights practices, and there is high relative prevalence of poor practices in the region. At the corporate level, companies are facing increased scrutiny from stakeholders to address human and labor rights concerns impacting the supply chain, with concerns in China attracting the greatest attention. Large asset owners, for one, have started to apply human and labor rights as a basis for negative screening, and a number of pension funds across the globe are explicitly excluding investing in Chinese companies in particular, or allocation to the country as a whole, citing concerns in these areas. We had highlighting rising S-risk in our China ESG outlook earlier this year, and now seeing this play out, not only in manufacturing supply chains, but across other industries such as technology over recent months as well. However, we also think this increasing focus on S factors in supply chains as an opportunity, as companies considered leaders in this area are likely to benefit both from increased interest from investors, but also from reverse sourcing, where sustainable values and practices amount to a competitive advantage. In the G pillar, we highlight that board independence and gender diversity have been key focus areas in the region. You've written about Asia coming of age in terms of the regulatory framework. Can you share the key regulatory developments that relate to social and governance for this region? That's right. Overall in Asia, we have seen in recent years a push towards mandatory ESG disclosures with many countries, including S and G metrics within that. Looking at the G pillar specifically, board independence remains a key ESG focus for investors in Asia. Japanese companies on average have made the most progress over the last decade, driven by Prime Minister Abe's third arrow, which focused on corporate governance. More recently in China, the State Council is notably reforming its independent director system as part of a broader push for ESG improvement that we have seen for, from the government over the past year. And similarly in Singapore, it was just made compulsory for listed companies to limit the tenure of independent directors, for example. Outside of G, diversity and inclusion, and particularly gender equality, remains high on the agenda around the region too. And this is very noticeable in Australia, where companies now have to disclose gender pay gaps after the recent passing of the Workplace Gender Equality Amendment, and similar pushes for greater gender-related disclosure and inclusion are taking place in Japan as well. South Korea still lags on board gender diversity, but this is set to change with regulation now in force to abolish single gender boards for large listed companies. And that's part of efforts to improve overall corporate governance. And this is also in line with moves we have seen from other regulators around the region to specifically target board gender diversity. Thanks, Hannah. I'd like to now turn to Kurum, who's responsible for spearheading our global ESG stock selection framework. Kurum, what is ESGQ? And can you describe the SQ and GQ screens that your team has developed? What are the key findings? Thanks very much. Our quantitative work on ESG allows us to construct and compile screens based on a systematic approach. We've developed ESGQ, a framework um, for picking stocks a few years ago. Today, our stock allocation model covers about five and a half thousand stocks globally, and it's JP Morgan's proprietary stock selection model. This model allows us to select stocks in a responsible way. The detail suggests that we look at three main components. Number one, the stability in ESG scores. Um, as they tend to be more slow moving and infrequent. So we try to capture here 
the long-term corporate responsibility profile of a company. And to help us, we use data that typically originate from company accounts, corporate strategy statements, and survey data. In addition, we couple these metrics with more faster moving ESG data that is based on news flow or natural language processing techniques that allow us to cover controversies ideally before, but at least as they unravel. And then lastly, our key component is also to look at momentum in these ESG scores, both for the stability factor and the fast moving factor. And what we're trying to pick up here is investor sentiment and behavior. The key takeaway is that the backtesting data for ESGQ has yielded some of the highest returns over the long run with very favorable sharp ratios or risk adjusted returns. And if we drill down into the governance and social fillers, essentially they are quite impressive. They give us equally good returns and sharp ratios that are greater than one. Year to date, we have seen that the social and governance screens have outperformed the market on a long only basis, but also about 5% on a long short basis. And today the fundamentals suggest that the social pillar is and governance pillar are much cheaper than the broader market and the environmental factor. So it looks very promising that ESG can help us pick stocks in a responsible way. Your team has also created a human capital factor metric. Can you describe what this is and how it plays into what's called the innovation culture score that's been developed? How does it ultimately impact performance? That's an interesting question on human capital. It's a a field that we've spent a lot of time on recently, partly because there's very little research in this among um, in the social pillar. We are quite passionate about this area, and as many corporates say, their employee is their most significant asset. What has been a problem up until now is to be able to measure that. We think that in the last 30 years, financial capital has been rewarded more than human capital, but we think the tides are now turning. And we think that there is a human capital premium to be exploited as we look ahead. The key question is, what is human capital? And uh, human capital essentially is, are, are those building blocks on the balance sheet that are intangible. So it's the worth of the company through the employees, through the company culture. It's the way we do things. It's the innovation. It's the, it's the pride. It's the motivation. It's the relationship between management, between subordinates in a firm, and putting all of that together in one metric. We found by defining human capital, by looking at two main key sources of data. Number one, what employees in, in firms tell us about their firm, so through human resource employee surveys. And then secondly, through social media web scraping, we can find that there are additional data points that are complementary. We've built a human capital factor. And what we find is that this data is unique. It's very difficult different from disclosure data in ESG and, and it outperforms in a significant way. It's also very different from news flow data in ESG and will outperform many of the controversial data that we find in this space on natural language processing but also amongst controversies. But the third building block that I'm very intrigued about is how human capital as a data point is also very different from traditional quant metrics. 
By that, we mean that it has a very different return profile for traditional factors like value, growth, quality, and momentum. And it has um, essentially um, ability to outperform each. One additional point that is worth mentioning is that within the human capital factor data set, we've focused on an innovation culture score. Now, the innovation culture score has the same roots of human capital, but what is unique is that it focuses on the ability for um, an organization to foster innovation through its employees, giving them encouragement, giving them psychological safety, and with the view of pursuing new products and ideas. What we find is that when we try to capture this for companies in the US, then firstly, the results are very positive. And there is a positive outperformance versus NASDAQ, Russell 1000, and MSCI USA. In particular, there's about a 4% um, excess return from this type of metric. It has a T-stat of about 2%, so it's deemed to be significant. And when we look at sort of drawdowns, they tend to be very slight versus the broader market. This is one field that we think both innovation culture as well as human capital will build over coming years. And we think this is an area that is worth taking a second look at. So that's all from me and I'll pass it back to you. Thank you, JX, Hannah and Karim for joining me today to talk about the key themes that are emerging for S&G pillars across various regions. This discussion is part of a two-part series focusing on social and governance trends. I hope you get a chance to join us for the first part of the series as well to hear how social and governance risks are increasingly impacting supply chain resiliency. So please look for ESG and supply chain risks, putting the spotlight on SMG in ESG. Stay tuned for more episodes of All Into Account, JP Morgan's global research podcast series, as we explore the key macro and market trends impacting financial markets. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan's research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on May 15th, 2023.